Songwriter, the podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today we have a brand new song from Anche Duvacot, a song that she'd been waiting years to write. But first, the story. My name is Keith Rossum. I am a writer, illustrator, graphic designer, stay-at-home dad, reasonably good, I don't know, pinball player for being legally blind, but I primarily consider myself a novelist and short story writer. I grew up in a pretty wild house. My parents kind of got their lives straightened out when I was about 10. And so I was around 10 or 11 when I discovered that I was actually legally blind. We just didn't really know the depth of my impairment until then. And by then I was really already immersed in comic books and, and drawing. By the time this like kind of judgment was handed down about my impairment, I was already pretty well immersed in like art and drawing. Thankfully, my mom like certainly didn't um, steer me away from that sort of uh, life or endeavor just because I had this newfound impairment. It's certainly hard as hell sometimes, considering I can't see like an entire computer screen at once or a certain, an an entire piece of paper. So it lends a certain um, quality to my work that um, might look stylistic, but is more a limitation, you know? I certainly haven't let my visual impairment uh, infringe upon my visual art. As well as producing the cover art and the design for his own books, Keith has also done album covers for the Goo Goo Dolls, Green Day, and many other bands. I I do this thing called scanning where I'm constantly, whether it be walking down the street or drawing a picture or whatever, I'm constantly like hundreds of times a minute reassessing where I am, moving my field of vision around rapidly. And just a lot of it is like so innate memorization of my surroundings. And so nine times out of 10, I pass as a sighted person uh, until I, you know, uh, run into a door or something, you know? If it's like a busy place, like a show or an airport or something, I'll totally bring my cane along. And that's not so much for like me needing it, but more like when I inevitably run into somebody, I want them to understand that it's just not me, me being a jerk, you know? I don't know where uh, Forgive Me This, the name of the story, I don't know where that where it came from. Um, I think it's, all of my characters are inherently ruined in some way. All my people are effed up, like, significantly. This is Keith Rossen with his story, Forgive Me This. You stop at a gas station that glows in the valley like its own miniature city. The cement box of a store, a half dozen pumps under light as bright as a morgue table. Constellations of moths beat themselves senseless beneath the standing roof. You're driving. Okay, your cousin Lynn is driving from Portland to Bismarck. You're on 90, somewhere between Coeur d'Alene and Missoula, and the night yawns ahead with nothing but the promise of more darkness, more fields of meager, scattered lights on your peripheries. Salsa music ghosting through rips of static on the radio, evangelical hollering, the same 40 classic rock songs over and over again. You've lost your license to a DUI the year before, and Lynn is going to drive you all the way there. You're not close, you and Lynn, except you love her. You have for years. It's some vestige of your childhood, some holdover. 
You were going home because your father's house burned down yesterday. He is in a Bismarck hospital and it doesn't look good for him. You cannot afford plane fare. You also can't afford to pay for gas, but Lynn doesn't know this yet. Inside your backpack are shirts and underwear, a coverless copy of Moby Dick you stole from the back of a friend's toilet, and a glass jar filled with change, a jar that pulls at the straps of your pack, that weight being about the only comfort you have right now, that and the surety that there is at least a further ways to go before you have to move on to the next thing, the next gathering of new rooms and new decisions. Halfway there, says Lynn, we're making good time. Lynn is five years younger than you. She dances at a club. No, she's a stripper. What? What's the right term? You want to ask her about it, try to seem knowledgeable, worldly, but you're unsure which term she prefers. It seems important, that distinction. It's quite a scandal in the family, Lynn's job, which you think is funny given how fractured and fucked up the rest of your family is. She is beautiful and tired and covered in an armada of stick-and-poke tattoos, and you have loved her since you were both children. She has always been fearless in ways that you are not. When she smokes and releases her cigarettes through the howling wedge of open window, they bounce in the road behind you and you watch sparks burst in your mirror. Dig, Lynn's son, sweet and myopic and fragile in his huge eyeglasses, sleeps in the back seat but shifts awake when you pull into the gas station. I'll get the snacks, you get the gas, you say, turning your face away and peering at the glowing storefront. Does that sound okay? You try to keep your voice light, you turn and look at her. Lynn pauses, blinks, um, sure. The nozzle notches into the tank and you see Lynn's torso through the window. See the rips of fog from her mouth as she blows into her hands. You turn and wink at Dig as he stares back at you, his eyes owlish and huge behind his lenses. He's five, he doesn't talk very much, or maybe he talks all the time. You don't really know. You don't really know much of anything. You want anything, bud? A pop? You get out of the car. Lynn is frowning at the gas readout, notching the total in pennies. Can he have a pop? Sure, she says without looking at you. You take your backpack inside, nod at the red-faced woman at the register. Should I leave this up here, you ask? It's fine, honey. You wander the aisles, putting things in your pack, pointless things. You pour two coffees, grab a Coke, a pair of cheap sunglasses for $3. You take out the jar, pour out a swath of change on the counter, paying quarters. It phases the woman not at all. Your backpack is heavy with contraband, an evil Dan word, if ever there was one. Stupid things, cupcakes, lip balm, WD-40. This feels somehow like you are balancing something out. Lynn has parked the car and is talking to your aunt on her cell phone. Dig holds his pop in two hands when you lean in and hand it to him. Lynn stands there on a yellow parking block in front of the car, flexing her calves and standing on her toes. A man comes out and watches her as he gets into his truck and you look at him until he looks away. You open a hostess pie and break it in half, lean in and hand it to Dig, then light a cigarette and lean against the door. You eat and smoke, and Lynn shakes her head and says into the phone, We'll make it. We're making good time. What does your heart do when you hear this? She says, I know. I will. She says, Okay, Mama. She smiles, and she says, I love you, too. Well, and you are one of those shitty passengers that falls asleep and doesn't keep the driver company. You don't mean to, but you are tired. 
After Halila kicked you out, you've been couch surfing, and sleep is sometimes a fitful, fleeting thing. When Lynn's mom called you on your cell phone to tell you your dad had fallen asleep with a cigarette, had burned his house down, you were sitting on Evil Dan's couch. You know a lot of Dans. Dan Smith, Wheelchair Dan, Tattoo Dan, Married Dan, Evil Dan. And telling him Halila's absence was like someone taking an ice cream scoop to your heart and removing the entire thing in one go. Then your phone buzzed in your pocket. You'd been staring at Evil Dan's boa constrictor when you answered it. The snake was molting and it looked fake, how symmetrical and lovely the skin was, like bubble wrap, you thought. Your eyes, when you answered the telephone, felt like they were coated in cement dust. You talked for a minute with your aunt, and he's burned real bad, she said, real bad, all over. The snake seemed like it was dead, maybe. Okay, you said. She said, I'm real sorry, hon, and then she waited for you to say something, but what was there to say? How many times had he fallen asleep like that, cocooned in a fog of spent alcohol, only to have the cherry of his smoke burn his stomach, fall between his legs until he awoke bellowing and slapping at his thighs, his glass tumbling and rolling in circles on the floor. How many times? They're not... And here her voice caught, like the way a shirt could get snagged on fence wire. They're not real sure he'll make it. But you should probably come. You, you should come. You didn't want to tell your aunt you couldn't drive anymore. I'm not sure what your vehicle situation is, she said, as if she could read your mind, but Lynn could drive. It's just that they don't know if he's going to make it, hon. They don't know. Okay. The snake, you never learned its name, but when you hung up, it turned its head, tongue tasting the air. So you fall asleep like a jerk and you have a dream. Lynn wakes you up in the middle of it, and you come awake knowing that you've cried out, made a noise. The radio is playing a song you remember from high school. It goes, you can't take me, but I'll go with you. It's a bad song. Lights alongside the highway strobe past you, light up your legs and chest, and then vanish behind you. You were dreaming, Lynn says. Dig says you yelled real loud. You sounded happy, though, Lynn says, smiling. Sorry. You scrub your face and your hands make a rasping noise along your whispers. whiskers. You look at the clock and are grateful at how little time has passed, how much further you have to go. You want to stay in this car forever with your cousin you are in love with and her sweet son with the strap around his glasses. They love you the way family loves you, without reserve, without grace, like drinking a glass of water. The dream is a fading thing. It's like sneaking your fingers under a piece of old wood and lifting. Only you don't want to lift it. It's pointless. Halila was someone you met at church. Evil Dan would take you to a Catholic church up in Laurelhurst sometimes for Mass. You liked it. Another Evil Dan word. He called it interloping, and he combed his hair and took out his pentagram earrings, and you'd go on Saturday nights after a few beers. You liked the solemnity, the sense of ritual, the priest with his sing-song lamentations the drifting tendrils of incense he pushed with the backs of his hands. As he walked down the aisle chanting Latin, the choir sang above you and the ceiling was high and everything was hushed and glowing. And when you leaned over and asked evil Dan, who in his pastel shirt and tie really did look like a wholly new person, stock analyst Dan maybe, 
what that spot was above you where the choir sang. He told you it was actually called the choir. Oh, you said. Or the choir stalls. Like a bathroom stall, you said, still a little drunk, and a lady in front of you turned around, frowning. An evil Dan winked at her, and you belched behind your fist, but it came out louder than you meant, and you heard someone laugh behind you, and when you turned and looked, this girl was there. This blonde girl that would turn out to be Halila. But you, of course, wouldn't know that until after Mass, when everyone was hanging outside talking, and did it really matter anyway? Was that what you wanted to spend your time thinking about here in this car, when you haven't felt good or safe in forever? You stop at a rest stop as dawn blues the tree, tree line. The lawn beside the cement building is waterlogged and dotted with scraps of trash, skeletal trees. Mist hugs the ground and dead leaves float in gasoline-blurred puddles. Everybody goes to the bathrooms. Dig takes your hand as you walk towards the men room and something in you tightens, as clearly as if someone was working a ratchet inside your ribs. Will you stand guard? Dig asks as he goes into a stall. Sure, you say, and a trucker standing in a urinal smiles against the wall. As you step out of the bathroom, you take Moby Dick out of your jacket and put it below the pocked and dented steel mirror. Your face in the mirror is funhouse distorted and you only look for a second. Outside, the sun is burning through the morning clouds and every blade of grass seems dotted with jewels. Can't believe I'm coming back here, Lynn says. Me neither, you say. It isn't about the fists of your youth, the lurching zombie stomp of the man's footfalls as he tried to keep his balance, the blood that sometimes stippled his undershirts, the way his glassy eyes tried to lock on yours while his skull drifted like seaweed in a current. It was not the offhanded dismissiveness after you left home, the yawning silences. Closer, perhaps, was the casual cruelty of your phone calls, the way he would answer your talk of doing well in this new town with those little chuckles, those derisive grunts, that way of decimating the conversation, that way of leveling you with just the hum of your shared history. Don't bullshit a bullshitter, he'd say. You and me are the same animal. You are outside of town onto Highway 94 now, and traffic is good. Traffic is really light. You are going fast, with the sun truly burning through scudded clouds. And it's when you see the cylinders of the Tessero refinery out the window, those silver-gleaming mom- gleaming monoliths rising brutish from the ground, always the waypoint that home is near, that your heart thunders in your chest like God has reached down and squeezed. Mama, Dig says, I have to go to the bathroom. We're almost there, bud, Lynn says. Can you hold it? Dig thinks for a second and then says, yes, I can hold it. Telephone poles wicker past you. They look like spears driven into the earth. Stop, you say. Lynn looks at you. Stop, you say again. The wind rips at the door in your hands as you open it. And what you dreamt, you dreamt of thin coffee served in flimsy pale cups. There were chairs with fabric seats and wooden arms. A painting of the ocean on the wall. A television was mounted high in the corner of the room and showed something anxiety-inducing. A nature show. Or possibly healthy people in advertisements for home exercise equipment. The nurse was pretty and sleepy. Not Halila, not Lynn. And she smiled, really smiled, when she saw you. You dreamt that you came to the emergency room, clean-shaven and unworried, as if it had been a whole different life.
and he was in his bed, uninjured, and the light caught the clean lines of the bars caging him there, keeping him safe. The blue veins in his hands, tubes notched in his elbows. Machinery surrounded him, but did not touch him. And he smiled at you, he did, as you felt the warm rasp of his hand on the back of yours. And when you bent down and held him, you did it for love and not for duty. That was Forgive Me This by Keith Rawson. And now for the song written in response. My name is Antje Duvacat. I am a singer-songwriter, and I would describe myself as being in the vein of confessional singer-songwriters. In other words, I write about my life like pretty much straight diary entry set to music. It's very real and personal and super vulnerable, um, but I love that. That's the tenant that I subscribe to. I was raised on singer-songwriters that do that. They just put it all out there. It's, yeah, very vulnerable, I guess. <laughs> Like Keith, Anche works in a number of different mediums, including work she does with other artists. During COVID, I started putting out animated videos for fun at first, and um, they resonated with people. So suddenly I'm doing it as a second career, but I don't yet say it because I still have imposter syndrome because I've only been doing it for about a year. So I'm like, well, I mean, I can't really call myself an animator yet, but I am working on it and I'm really excited to have another outlet that is super creative, but also really different from music. I did a, a paper cutout animation for Toad the Wet Sprocket and I was really grateful that Glenn gave me the chance to do that because they're a really well-known band and it was really exciting to work for them. Um, and then I, after that, I did a video for Dar Williams, which is also in the same vein. I really just got into this, but I've been throwing myself into it with like the intense passion of someone who had just discovered a new, like a new art form. <laughs> for me, when I listen to like Dar's song that she wants me to do a video to, um, emotions sort of well up with the words, like imagery pops into my head. Um, that goes along with the lyrics, but it's not necessarily literal. And it's somewhat similar to the way in which images pop into my head when I'm writing a song. It's, it's somewhat similar, but it's also really different. Like when I'm writing a song, um, I also get these visions of metaphors that fit. Um, and the pictures describe the feeling, but they're not exactly about the thing. There's, it's really hard to describe the creative process. Like, does that make any sense? I have no idea. curious to hear how you guys picked me to write this song or whether Keith picked me or whether he had some kind of an intuition that I was the right person for this story because the story was uncannily it hit like in the bullseye of like what I love to write about and what I love to think about and the imagery is so beautiful I feel like the fit was amazing um so much so that it kind of blew my mind so when I first read the story, I was really moved by it. Um, and I also related to it so deeply because I think um, I've been in the same place as that character, like the exact same place. So first I was like, oh my God, this is kind of like my exact story. How weird is that? Because I was expecting to have to write a song about some assignment that I didn't relate to, but then it was an assignment that was like, write your own song about your own story, essentially. And then I was like, can I do that? Like. 
my dad is a, you know, my dad is that person. Like he, it's kind of the exact same story. But then I was like, what if I write about me? That's intensely vulnerable. Um, can I do that? But then I listened to your podcast and some of the songwriters and the storytellers are so honest and vulnerable about how personal the stories are for them and the songs that I was like, okay, I can do this. I can, I have license to be super vulnerable and go to a dark place, which is actually a really big privilege because I feel like in daily life, you never get to go to the dark place because no one likes that. It like brings down a party. And so I was like, yes, awesome. This is, this is like the universe telling me to write the song about how, how much I dread seeing my father and how much I visit him because it's a sense of duty and the dread I feel even just like getting close to his house is just so heavy um, and I think I've been wanting to write the song maybe for like decades and it's been that kind of thing where I keep inching toward it and I almost write a song about my dad but then I'm like oh no maybe I'll, I'll write about my college boyfriend instead like I think I've been veering away from this topic for so long and so like this project happening was um, kind of a gift to me um, I got to write the song that I've been meaning to write for a long time and and share it with with Keith and with his story I have no idea whether it's personal for him, but it doesn't matter because it's it really resonated for me. So there exists a breed of person that is maybe somewhat low on empathy and high on putting themselves above other people that sort of loves to cut you down and criticize you more than support you. And my father has been this my whole life. He's it's almost like he loves making me feel badly and rather than, you know, what you expect from a parent is to support you. So it took me a while to figure that out. And so like two years ago, I actually cut off contact with him because of this, because it just wasn't going anywhere. But it's also really hard because family is family. And, and at the same time, it's not love the way that you would hope it would be. So the limbo of traveling there and really kind of wanting to just stay in the limbo instead of arriving at your destination. That was so beautifully put and few people talk about that. Most people, I think, they look forward to arri arriving at their family's front door. For me, the arrival is like when things get really hard. Um, I tend to dread those visits with my dad months ahead of time. I tend to go once a year and then afterwards I also really have to like restore myself because something in me just gets sucked out and really drained and even the weeks after it's like I have to recover from visiting him and then I sometimes get really angry too because I feel like that's not fair like other people get to see their families and they come home feeling like uplifted and um, but it's something that's really hard to talk about in society because most the norm is not that and so um, those of us who have these really super dysfunctional families we kind of keep it to ourselves because it's a, it's a, it's just a bummer <laughs> which is why I think um, music and art is such a great place where we can bring these things up in a sort of a beautified safe place where we are allowed to say our truth no matter what it is writing and stories and songs are sometimes just the way to go when you want to communicate with the other people out there who maybe also have this alternative negative experience but we don't all go shouting it from the rooftops but we can kind of like covertly communicate about it with each other 
And so if someone writes a song about this topic or story like Keith, it's a, it's a gift to me because then I feel less alone. I'm like, yeah, I've, I've been in that exact place. There is a little bit more of a fear in society in general to be labeled as, you know, someone with trauma or whatever. And I feel like that stigma gets completely lifted when you meet people who, uh, you know, who are, who've sort of overcome it and people who have used art to overcome it, which is, it's like such a positive way to go. I mean, it's such a healing tool. I mean, people go all kinds of ways. The ones of us who make something good out of it, and oftentimes it's something, you know, creative, I think that's such a, um, adaptable, adaptive, adaptive thing to do. And so I do relate a lot to other artists in that regard. Like we speak for a lot of people, like we're, we can give voice to a lot of people, which then in, in a way also empowers us. And then it heals us. Like it's, it's kind of a beautiful process. <laughs> so I think I wanted to begin the song with kind of the dread feeling and like getting closer and leaving your body a little bit and dissociating. When you're dealing with a narcissist, they're never going to see you. They're never going to hear you. They're never going to empathize with you. It's just all you can do is kind of go through the motions. So it's already a failed mission. Um, so I think that's what I mean with the house always wins. Like, my dad will manage to make me feel disconnected from the world and have to kind of protect myself emotionally. So um, when I'm with him, I don't tell him any of my successes, my truths, my happiness, because he would probably just tear those apart and diminish them and belittle them and attack them. So instead, I have to become this person that's not me at all. I just make small talk like, oh, look, the weather, the weather. But after so many days of being at his house, I forget who I am. I feel like, oh, maybe I can never be better than this. So I think I refer to that in the song as well. Like when you come from a certain family that's really messed up and limited. I think that in my daily life, I have done better. Like I have relationships with people where we're open and honest. And I think it's a better quality than what I have with my dad. But when I go back there, I think, okay, this is where I came from. And it feels so real and it, it brings me so much back to how I used to be when I lived with him. I was, I couldn't flourish. It was impossible to flourish. It's really hard to protect yourself. Um, and it's a matter of time. Like the first two, three days, I remember who I am. On day four, I start forgetting who I am. On day five, it's inconceivable to me that I've done all these brave things in my life. They seem like another lifetime. For this interview, I introduced Keith and Anjay for the first time, and this is what Anjay had to say. I mean, huge fangirl. I mean, you're such a beautiful writer. I wish I could write like that. It's just, it was perfect. The story was just perfect. I, I read it really slowly on an airplane, so I was like fully focused. And the more I read it, I started like jotting down notes in the margins and getting more like, oh my God, I love this. This is so beautiful. For his part, Keith Rossen has been a fan of Anche Duvkots for many years, and when I asked him who should write a song in response to his story, she was quite literally at the top of his list. Because of that, I asked Keith to record what it sounded like the first time he listened to Anche's song. Okay, I am about to start listening to Anche's song, uh, Lottery Tickets. It is not quite four minutes long, and I'm so excited. Here we go. Wow. 
I just got to pause it here for a sec. She is uh, just a genius, man. It is already just the guitar work is beautiful and I'm recognizing little snippets from the song, but it's also clearly something that she's calling from herself. So uh, yeah, it's awesome. Holy shit, dude. This is Anche Duvkat with her song, Lottery Ticket. the waypoint the Belfield refinery you're leaving your body now just the drum of your heart you feel numb as you restart the car past the old mill everything will go still you know the drill and you crawl past the silos in the New Salem mall Ghosts of both Flanagan's bar They're scratched open and hewed over Like your handlebar Bike scars like the ice on the reservoir And you'll make your last stop At Ava Lake's corner shop On your way into town Give me a lottery ticket A pair of new suit of armor you said it'll be everything and when you get to the house and he lets you in there's never a doubt house always wins but you can send me a postcard of a warrior princess he the dismisser he the magician he the chainsaw in sheep's clothing He the vandal who will crush all that you've built He the master of attrition And you will go missing You will get blurred in the pixels of his twisting words And maybe it was crazy and was outrageous Think you could be more than this place of your birth on this face that's absurd to ring the holes where nothing grows and keep watering the astroturf that is written in blood. It's what a daughter does when you do it for duty. It sure isn't love. always wins but you can send me a postcard of a warrior Armor, you 
Guess that'll be everything And when you get to the house And he lets you in There's never a doubt House always wins But you can send me a postcard A warrior princess That was Lottery Ticket by Anche Duvacot, written in response to a story from Keith Rawson. The next episode features Jonathan Lethem reading from his novel, The Arrest, and a song written in response by Tift Merritt. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss it, and if you don't mind, give us a rating and a review as well. If you want to support the show and its artists, grab a premium subscription on Apple Podcasts. Songwriter is a part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, and you can always get early access at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur, and while you're there, check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, as always, thanks to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe